0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Tim Durrant, today's presenter. Will the constant drip drip of bad news ever stop for Rishi Sunak? Not if the water runs out. Thames Water, which serves a quarter of the UK population, has billions of pounds in debt and could collapse in the next few days. How did we get here? Is this a failure of regulation? And what can the government do about it? Do you remember when British politics was made of a cast of good chaps who could be relied upon to do the right thing? Well, whether or not that era of good behaviour ever really existed, this week the good chaps have been declared dead. It may not surprise you to know that Boris Johnson is involved. We'll take a look. And with both Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer promising to turn the UK into a clean energy superpower, just how much progress is the government making on its net zero target? A new annual progress report is out, and it's not a happy read for the government. So we've got lots to come, and a top IFG duo are here alongside me to discuss everything. Senior Fellow Jill Rutter and Programme Director Alex Thomas. Hi both.
1: Hi Tim. Hi Tim.
0: And we're particularly delighted that Henry Hill, Deputy Editor at Conservative Home, is with us throughout today as well. Hi Henry. Hello. Let's start with water, or the possible lack of it, because Thames Water is struggling to stay afloat. Henry, let's start with the politics and the optics. How bad is this for Rishi
2: Sunak? I mean, it's very it's very difficult for the government for for several reasons one it's just another you know grinding infrastructure problem um one of many that will affect an awful lot of households two fixing it or you know, nationalizing water which a lot of people want to do in the long run would be incredibly expensive uh three it adds to the general sense that this is another crisis that has built up uh under sort of 13 years of conservative government but also four because if you poll people and you don't drill them on the practicalities or the costs then nationalizing water is incredibly popular and that's partly because this kind of the bankers the bonuses style story of water privatization has grown up where basically it was all flogged off to the the not the previous tory by the previous tory government i don't mean any of the recent ones i mean the the sort of major thatcher one it was all flogged off to their mates and then it's been run into the ground when in fact as, as rob colville has shown ring fencing water uh the the money in the water system for the water system has actually done much better for, for for such investments as we have. But that's a very hard sell to make. So I think that this is one something that kind of rebounds on the Tories on all, on all levels because it strikes both against their practical management of an important system and, superficially at least, ideologically against the idea that utilities are better in private hands.
0: And part of the structure that that the Thatcher major government set up was these you know these regulators, so OffWatt, offgem to oversee the newly privatized industries. off what is the relevant one here has, has they have they made mistakes?
2: I mean they they almost certainly they almost certainly have made mistakes. Uh, the The ideal for a regulator is that you don't have uh, huge parts of the system you're regulating keeling over, and the um, infrastructure should ideally be working. I think those are two relatively baseline. Uh, metrics through which to assess a regulator. But I do think it's important to stress that this isn't something that I think we could have simply avoided through regulation. Ultimately, the problem or the, 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 the deepest problem with our water system is that we are still running on Victorian infrastructure and we haven't built anything like new reservoirs in decades. And with the best will in the world, that's not really something that the water companies could have done on their own. You know, they've been crying out for the Abingdon Reservoir for something like 25 years. And politicians have just refused to summon sufficient political will to face down the veil of White Horse and get that built. And we talk about the, you know, we, we, we lambast water companies for leaks. But in a wet country such as the UK, going for a zero leak system is actually relatively inefficient. We've got plenty of water. We just need, we, we should be just storing more of it. So yes, there has clearly been failures and more action is going to have to be taken and more investment in upgrading our water infrastructure, especially with regards to sewage and uh, beaches and swimming places is is clearly going to be both politically urgent and genuinely important. I think we very often kind of not we maybe but voters and some politicians try and convince ourselves that we actually have good systems that have been let down by baddies and i think actually this is an example of where we've got a pretty bad
1: system i don't think the government ever really convinced people of the case for privatizing water because uh, there's no competition in the water industry you have to take from whatever is the provider and most people see water, it used to be a DEFRA slogan, Alex will remember, is an essential of life. And I think Rebecca Powell, the minister, was slightly mocked for explaining to people yesterday in the Commons what water was, uh, which is no doubt very helpful to everybody. I do think there's a really interesting question about regulators and the extent to which regulators should be interested in the forms that private companies take and their business models. And I think we saw that with Ofgem on Bulb, which seemed to have a good model of bringing in competition. And remember the mantra on energy was change your supplier to somebody offering more competition, uh, lower prices, etc. These business models aren't very resilient to changes in circumstance. And that seems to be a big problem now that's got Thames into trouble is that a sort of financing model that worked in a world of low interest rates has proved very unresilient to a world in which interest rates go up. And ultimately, the government will have to bail it out, can't do anything else because it's too essential to fail categories. So I do think there's a really interesting question about what the regulators regard as in scope and not in scope. The interesting thing about water is that there's a totally different model for water supply in each of the four nations of the UK. So actually, when we talk about privatized water, it's English water that's privatized. There's a very intriguing different model in Wales where Dua Cymru is a social enterprise, doesn't make profits, remain nationalized in Scotland and in Northern Ireland, You don't actually have separate water bills. It's still paid for through the rates, which used to be the sort of old system. So it's quite interesting. We do have this sort of almost natural experiment going on uh, of water across the country. But it does seem that the model in England is leaving everybody very dissatisfied because it's failing on prices, failing on investment and certainly failing on environmental. So we've got a sort of simultaneous corporate collapse and environmental performance collapse. Which seems to be a very bad situation to have got ourselves in. Big question is, what on earth can you do about it? Any sort of acceptable cost to anyone?
0: Well, and, and so that's that is the big question, isn't it? As you said, Jill, and as you alluded to, Alex used to work at DEFRA. I mean, you know, DEFRA is the department that's going to be tasked with working out what to do next, right? Alex, how do you think people there will be feeling?
3: As Henry and Jill were saying, it's, it's, it's a a really tough problem to solve. I don't think it's just as easy as saying, Oh, well, you know, we need to tighten up the regulatory system. Isn't it a scandal that tens of billions of pounds have gone to in dividends to investors over the last 20 or 30 years? Well, yeah, that was sort of the point was to make it attractive for investors. And so if you cut off the uh, dividends, Uh, entirely, then you won't get the investment that is um, clearly desperately needed. So as I think Henry alluded to, it is a sort of, it's a judgment call for off what It feels like something has gone fairly, uh, you know, fundamentally uh, wrong there, but it's not as simple as just saying X, Y or Z uh, answer is the right one. There'll be a big political debate about all of this, but in the end it's going to come down to, to quite difficult judgment calls. I mean, one further reflection, I'll come back to DEFRA in a second, but one further reflection is this does feel part of, A kind of rolling slow burn crisis across large parts of the public sector and, frankly, the private sector that are not geared to a high inflation, high interest rate uh, economy. Part of the problem with Thames Water here seems to me to be I'm not an expert on this, but that the bills are geared to one measure of inflation uh, and the um, water companies are having to deal with another measure of inflation. So there's a big gap there. Interest rates are making uh, some of the debt that these companies have taken on unsustainable. We saw a version of that with the energy crisis. We're going to see the politics of this play out with the Bank of England taking a much more controversial and contentious and contested um, position in this. It does feel like the the resilience of the state, as well as the cost of living crisis and the mortgage costs that everybody's going to be dealing with is, 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 in, uh, you know, is in a much less robust place because we haven't been used to dealing with this. Final quick thought on DEFRA. I mean, how will they be feeling, you asked. Uh, it's, it, it is interesting that DEFRA holds all of these highly politically salient crises that people often neglect. And DEFRA is seen as a kind of lower tier department in the Whitehall pecking order. But whether it's um, water and sewage whether it's you know patch I used to work on for a while animal health and animal welfare um animal welfare often neglected and then it explodes into a, a general election campaign losing or gaining parties also you know lots of lots of votes in uh, valuable constituencies uh, flooding because as Jill said it deals with quote unquote the essentials of life an old Defra tagline these things can become very politically salient so I think there'll be some nervousness amongst the ministerial team in Defra in particular because this is an enormous problem without an obvious solution
0: And Henry, on on Alex's point there about, you know, there's this kind of slow burn of problems caused by by inflation and and rising interest rates. Obviously, last year, the government paid lots of money towards people's energy bills. Do you think we're going to see similar support for water bills if costs rise there for households?
2: I mean, the political case for doing that will be identical in as much as essentially, you know, you're coming up to a year before a general election. That tends to be when hosing money at voters makes the most sense from politicians but but how far do you go i mean if you're if you're subsidizing energy bills and then you're subsidizing you know water bills and then there's going to be other expenses and there's debate and i I don't know if the tories will hold the line on not subsidizing mortgages given how many of their key swing voters are going to be under enormous pressure um if they're sort of at the early stage of a mortgage there's already talk in the government about bringing back miras mortgage interest relief at source which was scrapped by gordon brown in 2000 which is a tax relief on um mortgage interest payments so but, but you then you do then end up in a situation where the government is kind of charging people all of these things and then mostly paying it themselves and I think the most sort of absurd example of this is currently this 170 pound net zero levy which is already being levied on energy bills but is being paid by the treasury now apparently in nine months that's going to stop uh, I don't think it will given that that will mean that they're whacking a load of money on people's energy bills a few months out from a general election I just don't think that's something the government's actually going to do but you just end up in this kind of uroboros where the the treasury is is levying fines on itself and, and all kinds of stuff. So yes, in the short term, there will be strong pressure to do that. But that just means that you're spending even more money fighting the symptoms and dealing with kind of ongoing revenue expenses and not making capital investments. And if you keep not making capital investments, these problems are going to keep getting worse and worse.
3: Some of this has obviously always clearly been been part of it, but I do wonder about the legacy of COVID and furlough schemes and that there's a sort of political impulse now um, that, uh, uh, you know, I'm from the government and I'm here to um, help you pay your bills. And that is entirely understandable, but not sustainable in the long term. The, the, talk, talk of how DEFRA are feeling. The Treasury will be feeling very anxious about that, I'm sure. Too.
1: There's also quite an interesting question about who the shareholders are in the holding company that Thames Water uh, is owned by uh it's really intriguing that the sort of you know number one shareholder is the Ontario Municipal Employment Pension Fund we always love Canadian pension funds for investing in our infrastructure the second one uh is the university superannuation scheme i don't think it's a hugely big holding compared to their other holdings but they they've got 20% of this one of the Brexit benefits the government's trying to Deliver is freeing up some of the rules in what's called Solvency 2 about where pension funds can invest. And Jeremy Hunt's very keen for them to invest in riskier assets and to help with sort of funding these things. And yeah, so far, I think the government's also holding the line that it still intends to go ahead with that. But it would be quite interesting to see whether some of this causes them to have second thoughts. But I think where Alex is definitely right is, I think one of the big themes for an the next government Is going to be resilience across the piece and all the different things and maybe more extreme cases that the legacy of the early 2020s will be. You need to show you're resilient to. You need to show you're resilient to a land war in Europe. You need to show you're resilient to inflation at levels that we haven't seen since the mid-1980s. You need to show you're sort of resilient to a whole bunch of sort of shocks that we hadn't really thought you needed to show your are resilient to. On top of the ones that are quite known, and um, we'll come on to a bit later about climate change and things like that.
3: And that'll have costs, Jill, I guess. I mean, it's the, are, are we prepared? Sorry to do that, <laughs> but you know, are we prepared to, to pay for those costs?
1: Yeah, and do, and do we need to recalibrate our calculation of the cost benefit ratios of investing in resilience? Because there's a very good reason why governments massively underinvest in prevention and resilience, which is, you know, it seems like money for nothing if the contingency doesn't arise. And certainly it's money for not now versus massive demands on current services.
0: Well, we could talk about treasury funding formula all day, I'm sure, so, but let's I'm going to move us on and talk about another legacy of of politics in the early 2020s, which is the good chaps or perhaps the lack of them. This week it transpired that Boris Johnson didn't seek permission from the advisory committee on business appointments, also known as ACBA, before he accepted his new job as the Daily Mail's star columnist. And Eric Pickles, Lord Pickles, the former Conservative MP who chairs acaba has complained that the rules were designed to offer guidance when good chaps could be expected to observe the letter and spirit of the rules, and that that time is long past and the contemporary world has outgrown the rules. So, Alex, remind us what ACAVA is, what is this committee, and what powers does it actually have?
3: It's another of these committees that um, uh, through the Johnson period we've heard so much about that is supposed to regulate standards and and ethics. And this is the one um, that deals with the so-called revolving door of ministers and civil servants who uh, leave the civil service uh, or ministerial office in order to take up jobs elsewhere. And so um, ACABA, the committee, will take a look at um, each uh, departing minister or official uh, and they will uh, consider the work that they've done, uh, the work that they're going to do and impose um, restrictions, whether that's a a cooling off period, as we've seen with uh, Sue Gray taking up the um, uh, job as chief of staff for For Keir Starmer in the the Labour Party, or you know other uh, restrictions on on, on lobbying. I mean, I think it's worth saying that this this Boris Johnson scandal in the pantheon of Johnson scandals, this is far from the greatest. Um, uh, Writing a a, a newspaper column doesn't, I don't think, expose uh, him or anyone else to enormous conflicts of of interest, and he is very far from the first person to um, uh, to to ignore these these rules. Um, But it is it is at root a a serious question about conflict of interest. Things you've been arguing, we've been arguing, is uh, is that uh, we need to, as a country and as government, to take a tighter grip on the actual conflicts of interest, and perhaps not impose these uh, unenforceable um, uh, broad uh, recommendations that that ultimately the government imposes, but on ACABA's recommendation, and take a more specific um uh, approach to the actual conflicts that might arise between ministerial civil servants and the and the jobs they do when when leaving uh, when leaving office that's certainly one of the things that nigel boardman recommended he re- looked into all of this after the next green seal scandal that um that some people remember from a couple of years ago and and, and suggested a much more kind of specific and intelligent uh, point on this it's an it's another area um uh, as we've talked about a lot where the uh, the rules rely uh, on uh, people people choosing to abide by them. My kind of glib point, I'm sure I've said it on the podcast before, is that ACABA um, uh, is a complete burden and a nightmare for those people who are trying to abide by the rules and probably don't need regulation uh, and is completely ignorable by those bad actors who uh, choose to act badly. Um, so it's not fit for purpose. Uh, Lord Pickles agrees. We certainly support that. So do the Committee on Standards in Public Life. So do all sorts of other others inside and outside government. So time for change, I think. Henry, what's your view on
0: this? Do you think the fact that a former
3: prime minister is is writing regular columns for
0: a newspaper matters?
2: No, that particular no, that particular job doesn't matter. It's Boris Johnson's natural home um, anyway, and it's it's not something where he's got he's true he's particularly trading on insider knowledge to somebody who might gain unfair commercial advantage or anything like that. So I I, I have to resist. I think a lot of us have to resist the temptation to pile onto something just because it's Boris Johnson and he's an intensely aggravating man. But this is. Fine, I think, and naturally, being me, I'm always slightly wary of um, sort of people in the official in the official sphere going, "Oh gosh, this proves that we need to have more influence over the politicians because ultimately, I believe in a political constitution, and you need to hold politicians to account politically, and that does mean giving them leeway to behave badly because if you insist on a system where they can't behave badly, that does involve setting people up with an awful lot of power over them." I think for me, the, the most frustrating thing to come out of the Boris Johnson uh, downfall, I guess, or that's a very long period of time, but the most recent iteration of that, the most recent episode is actually the resignation honors list more than this, because him, he, I don't think him becoming a columnist is is a problem, but I think that as someone who believes in the House, of who supports the House of Lords, supports the honor system and supports political appointments, I think that the failure of Rishi Sunak's failure to block this has been hugely damaging to all three, and I think it would have been a relatively easy political fix, right? You just, you know, you can say Apollo. You, Richie Sunak could have said he could one. He could have waited for the the the, 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 the privileges committee to come back with its judgment because I think it was absolutely absurd to wave this through when that sort of Damocles was hanging over Boris Johnson anyway. But then he could have just said, "Look, anyone is this a new convention that I'm inventing." A prime minister who doesn't serve out a full term doesn't get a resignation on it. So that would have allowed him to spike Johnson's, it would have allowed him to spike trusses, and it would have meant foregoing his own, he could have promised to forego his own if he didn't win the next election, which I think would have made him which would have made him look much better and made it look much less partisan. So Boris Johnson has done a lot of damage in the way that he has conducted himself with regards to many of these things. Um, you know, ignoring people's advice about who to put in the House of Lords and so on. But having a column in the Daily Mail no, that's fine. That's just Boris. And on that on your point about, you know, we have a political constitution, do
0: you think is is there enough political desire to kind of have an oversight of what people do after they leave government or, or because obviously, there's an incentive for an individual politician to want to get a good job? Is there a tension there between sort of the good chaps in theory and the individual actions in practice?
2: There is. I mean, I. I don't know if the good chaps thing was ever real. Um. I'm. I'm. I. am i It might. It might have been, but it does always feel slightly golden agey. You know, we've we're always living in the in the rebel of some golden age that was always some point in the past. Um. And it's difficult to see how. You know, you you almost certainly wouldn't wouldn't want a committee of MPs deciding what what jobs MPs got afterwards, right? Because that 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 creates or does create all kinds of conflicts of interest. So, and generally. The reason that so many of these bodies have kind of mushroomed over the past few decades is because in a whole range of fields, politicians seem to be reluctant to actually exercise day-to-day power over vast amounts of stuff. That's why we have so many quangos and so on and regulators. And why we, you, we pass so much power up to Brussels is ultimately, I, I keep saying to Tory MPs, if you don't want broad, you know, judges interpreting vaguely worded regulations or you don't want unelected quangocrats making loads of regulations you are going to have to actually do more of this yourself through legislation and that never seems to that never seems to sink in for some reason so no i think there is a bigger deeper problem with 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 politicians sort of lack of will to go gra- out to grapple, grapple with the state that they've created but again you do ultimately have to with your if you if you have a system where politicians are going to be the the the, the highest element there has to be scope for them to there has to be scope for them to to misbehave because otherwise they're not they're not genuinely free actors and i think that you, you should ruthlessly police where somebody might be in insider trading or the equivalent of insider trading giving people say privileged access like Owen Patterson did for example if someone's bidding for a state contract then that is a clear example of where even in the private sector notwithstanding politics we do not allow people to trade on insider information to gain commercial advantage like that that should be banned but no Boris Johnson I don't think you should even have had to ask Ackerbur about a newspaper column because it's just clearly not something where that kind of uh, conflict of interest applies.
1: No I'm absolutely with Henry there I think that actually it yeah, you can't actually be more transparent than writing a weekly column in a newspaper. I mean, you know, the idea that that's some sort of hidden activity or whatever is bizarre. I mean, maybe you, you would say you don't have any sort of commercial relationship with that sort of person and you know, you're actually giving them something else. And that's why they're publishing your random thoughts about diet or whatever Boris Johnson's columns have been about so far.
2: Our failed Canadian submarine that killed five people makes him proud to be British.
1: I mean, there's interesting question about the mail. Think it thinks it's getting value so far, but that's a commercial decision for for them. But, I, you know, it's like writing books and things like that. None of that really is sort back of a thing. So I think there is a case for saying, actually, what are we really worried about? Why are we worried about it? And do we then have the right institutions looking at ministers and civil servants and advisors to make sure, you know, with proper sanctions to make sure that the public interest is protected as it needs to be? And for the rest, people can go off and, uh, you know, exploit their talents in the best ways they can
3: and i think just i'm building on what jill and henry was saying there. for it's worth i think i mean i I agree on the newspaper column as i said i don't think that part of the point of targeting this on where there is a genuine need is not to have to gun people up with you know getting approval for newspaper columns or or whatever i think there's a really there's a really interesting critique in and and we face it at the the ifg i mean tim i know you we've talked about this quite a quite a lot is there is an instinct to reach for institutional solutions to some of these um, problems, and it's a um, it's it's a thoughtful critique from people like Henry of of the some of the work that we do at, at, at the IFG is that the instinct is so strong to say well the, something has gone wrong it must be regulated, but I do I think one of the one of the strengths of our system is that there is space to improve and improve the targeting of this sort of regulation in a whole host of standards areas, while. Maintaining the ultimate decision uh, in the hands of politicians, whether that's as we saw, you know, just before we started recording this, the Privileges Committee report around some of the kind of uh, people who had supposedly been undermining its um, its work on the on the Johnson affair, or a Prime Minister ultimately, Boris Johnson ultimately sticking by Priti Patel um, over the bullying allegations. You can, for me, there is space to strengthen the sort of getting to the truth and. Giving the opportunity for Parliament, the media, others to hold politicians to account, while leaving the ultimate decision in the hands of politicians who can choose to take or not take the political consequences of that. Which is where I—it's how Henry—I sort of reconcile your thoughtful and compelling critique of uh, of of, of uh, that institutional impulse with the need that I still feel to strengthen the way we do some of these things in in the UK.
2: Once we've abolished the ministerial code. Um- <laughs>
3: It was a very good article. <laughs> I commend Henry's conservative home piece in uh, on abolishing the ministerial code.
2: But but again but again there was a, that's not really a problem with the code it's so much as a problem with the way that we the with the press that was actually my biggest complaint about it was the you know, the code can be fine but if the media keep writing about oh x and y was fired for breaching the code um that turns a breach of the code into itself in the public's mind into a fireable offence, and that was not how the code was designed. And so that's that's not really, I think, another problem with the with the institutionalisation thing is that you can actually have a very well designed document or institution in theory and in isolation, and when you're drawing it up on a blueprint in a report. But then the way that it interacts with us, the, the scribblers and, and the public, can 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 foul its operation in in ways that are hard to foresee in advance.
1: You can go back to calling questions of procedure for ministers.
2: Yeah, <laughs> precisely. This, this is another topic that I feel like the four of us could talk about
0: all day, but I'm, I am going to move us on again, um, uh, much as it pains me, because I love the ministerial code, as everyone knows. Let's talk about something that I think actually Boris Johnson can take some credit for, perhaps, which is uh, the net zero agenda, but also how it's changing um, since he left number 10. So, uh, Jill, if I can come to you. Uh, This week, we got a a new report on the UK's progress towards net zero. Uh, Who is it from and what does it say?
1: So under the 2008 Climate Change Act, which is genuinely regarded as a world-leading piece of legislation Hmm. from the UK uh, under the last Labour government, but taken forward under the Conservatives, the Committee on Climate Change, independent climate change watchdog, currently chaired by former Conservative Secretary of State, Uh, John Gummer, just standing down, Lord Deben, as he's now known, is obliged to annually report on government progress on meeting its emissions reductions targets to Parliament. And that's what we had this week was their 2023 report. They're obliged under legislation to produce it by the 30th of June. So they got in just under the wire and the government then has to respond by mid-October. So what it gave us was a sort of rather... Critical picture. It said the government is actually, and they were uh, pretty confident the government's going to meet what they call the fourth carbon budget. That's the period we're currently in. But uh, before the COP in Glasgow, Boris Johnson ramped up the level of ambition. So Theresa May had upped the target from an 80% emissions reduction over 1990 levels by 2050, that was in the original act, to this net zero objective. And then before the Glasgow COP, where everybody was focusing on what do they do by 2030, Boris Johnson set this very ambitious target of a 68% reduction by 2030. And there's a carbon budget, the sixth carbon budget for the period in the mid 2030s beyond that. And what the Climate Change Committee said is that while the government was going to deliver their fourth carbon budget, look like that, uh, the government wasn't doing nearly enough now and progress had stalled in a lot of our areas it, and needed some really heroic emissions reductions to get to that uh, 68% target. And really intriguingly, it came out with this judgment that it was less confident than it was last year that the government could meet that target because the government was now more transparent. So there was a court case, a challenge from... Client Earth, and I think Friends of the Earth, to the original government net zero strategy, published in the run-up to the COP about what the government was going to do, was challenged as not being detailed enough. The government didn't set out detailed trajectories. In March 2023, Rishi Sunak's government did publish absolute masses of detail. And the committee's now said, we've looked at all that detail. Now we're less confident you're going to do it, because usually you think detail would be reassuring. And that's to a large extent, because the government is assuming that there's quite a lot of technological fixes that will come in at scale and solve problems for them. And yet again, the Climate Change Committee, I know this is something Henry feels quite strongly about, the Climate Change Committee said the government's banking too much on unproven technologies and is too unwilling to talk about demand reduction, uh, so behavior change. The Boris Johnson strategy, uh, when originally published in 2021, was very silent on behavior change. And this, the 2023 one, is equally silent. Uh, but one of the things that does seem quite interesting is a con- compare and contrast between Rishi Sun- Sunak and Boris Johnson is Boris Johnson did seem to have personally convinced himself, despite his earlier scepticism about net zero, and was very keen on pushing net zero. Rishi Sunak in the Treasury always seemed very lukewarm. It didn't feature as one of his five big priorities when he announced them at the beginning of the year. And Rishi Sunak is pretty much missing in action on this agenda.
0: So, Henry, as as Jill said, you've written about this recently, arguing that the government needs a new approach to net zero. Tell, tell us about that.
2: Well, yeah. So my argument was was essentially kind of the opposite of, of the of the, of the committee's one in that I think that the problem I have with net zero is essentially there's two ways you can get to net zero. One is you can kind of do the demand reduction thing. You can just make everybody's lives worse. You can ban stuff um, and so on and so forth. And I don't actually support that version of net zero at all. And I, I, I think that the public appetite for that kind of thing is very limited there's some i think there's a little bit of there's an element of sort of the um the fact that the people the public want to feel involved or at least a strong element the the element of the public that feels strongly about the environment they they do they do want to feel involved it's a bit like when american researchers found out that the only way they could sell pre-made egg uh, cake mix is if you let uh, people crack an egg into it so that they felt they would participated in the process somehow but ultimately the other way to do it is to is to make a positive, liberating case, right? I mean, clean energy is guilt-free energy. If we can genuinely transition over to a, a clean grid, then that's licensed to go for hugely increased energy generation, bringing down bills, unlocking new technologies which uh, we can't currently, which aren't viable or which aren't economically sou- or environmentally sound currently because of their carbon footprint. And there is a really positive case to be made for what we could do as a society, and indeed as a civilization, once we've managed to make that transition. But we're not really selling net zero in those terms because that involves things that we're really bad at, like really heavy investment in new infrastructure. I think, according to the uh, the upper end of industry projections, we're going to have to add fifty percent to this country's network of cables, and that's one of the lo- and that's not including new power stations and everything else. You know, net zero involves potentially bringing vast amounts of work that is currently performed by the internal combustion engine on the roads or by gas boilers and so on bringing all of that onto the grid that's going to be a huge technical challenge and so instead we it's easier for politicians to, to to do like little demand reduction things that just sort of suck a little bit of the joy out of life and do they make an appreciable difference individually no they don't really but they but they at least make people feel that they're participating. I'm always slightly sceptical of the way that net zero was done, which is politicians announcing enormously ambitious targets that will definitely be hit at some point after they themselves have retired. Um, because I think it's a sort of legacy building on the cheap, right? If we actually manage to achieve these things, then the politicians who set the targets get a lot of the credit. And if we don't manage to achieve them, then, well, those politicians were let down by all those that followed them. And if only we'd followed their their sort of bold, original vision. Currently, it doesn't look like we're going to have the technology and infrastructure in place to hit a lot of these targets. I don't think the national grid is going to be ready by 2030. I don't think we're going to have a charging a car charging infrastructure ready by 2030. And so we are going to end up backpedaling and there are going to be more of these critical reports. But for me, demand, you know, there's no reason for going green to involve major reductions to our quality of life, except for A poverty of ambition and an inability to deliver on big infrastructure projects so for me it's it's actually you know full steam ahead there is going to be new technology of course there's going to be new technology that new technology will come on stream and it will be cheaper over time and it does make sense as long as you're making those investments and you're investing in that R&D and you are prepared to build that infrastructure it does make sense to build the net zero strategy around that the only problem is is if you're using that to avoid making hard decisions now but then not putting the hard yards in to make sure that you can do that when it's ready
1: I think there's a lot a lot in what Henry says, and when I was at the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, along with Alex, years ago, uh, we used to have big debates about whether you, on things like climate, sustainable development, you know, did you try and present a positive vision of the future or did you sort of, you know, try and scare people and, you know, where actually were you most likely to get action? Um, I'm really, really interested in where Henry is with his positive vision, though, on whether UK should be landing in this sort of really interesting debate about what you do about sort of the green industries of the future. Because one of the things that's uh, quite striking, going to hear from Ed Miliband at IFG next week, is that Labour seems to be very much jumping on board with the Biden-esque approach of, you know, looking and seeing where you can get green, you know, make pace on green technologies and green jobs and do those as this is part of the vision. They're going to actually get into that race with what Biden's doing with big production subsidies to attract investment into the U.S. We've seen the EU doing something like the same thing uh, there. Um, Jeremy Hunt, I think, has promised us something, not yet for September, but sounds pretty skeptical that the U.K., even if it could get into a sort of matching subsidy race, should do that. And I just wondered, Henry, with your, you know, they're trying to say this is a positive vision because it's going to create loads of jobs and new industries, you know, well-paid manufacturing jobs, not... Uh, Not jobs in sort of baristas in coffee shops. Um, Where are you on that sort of side of the debate? Where do you think the Conservatives should land? I
2: mean, I'm I'm all in. I'm all in favor of it. Um, We, we, you know, we definitely also should be competing as hard as we can with the United States, which uh, which means we should not be uh, letting them vastly subsidize their industries and then harmonizing corporation tax rates with them on any area they don't feel they 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 don't feel like competing on, but. It's because it, ultimately, if you're the United Kingdom with the best will in the world, our contribution to global emissions is relatively low. So even if we sort of flagellated ourselves half to death and you know hugely make, increase uh, decrease the quality of life for for ourselves and our children, we're not going to make that much of a difference just by focusing on our own emissions. I actually think that the way that the UK could make the biggest positive contribution to the global struggle against climate change, whilst at the same time paying off hugely for the uk is to become the in one of the places that incubates develops and then exports the technologies that will help other countries make that transition i think small modular reactors is a great example now you know this is a potentially a really good way to try and make nuclear power more practical in an era when we have regulated the nuclear industry um, To to within an inch of its life, and it takes needlessly takes decades and vast amounts of expense to build a proper nuclear power station. SMRs are a great way forward. Now, there's a domestic side to that, which is that you know we could build a British a, a sort of new generation of British nuclear industry. We could provide new power for our own grid. Obviously, that will run into exactly the same problems we have building houses or telephone poles or anything else. So that might not happen. But if we do bring SMRs to maturity, we can also then export that technology. We can go to other countries which are struggling with their emissions, which are maybe less willing than us to make those sacrifices because they are still sort of in the developmental state, economically uh, developing. And we can, one, help them transition over onto a greener form of energy and two, help our balance of trade in the process. So, no, for me, it's just a question of if you actually want the UK to play a meaningful role in climate change at all given the small share of our of, of our domestic emissions as a contribution to the whole problem that's what you need to be doing I don't think there's really a tension there
0: final and a very kind of IFG question on this is um, Alex uh, what what's your view on kind of how the government is actually running itself to deliver net zero you know all of these difficult things that, that, that Jill and Henry have been talking about um, is, is the government does it actually have the right structures in place to make this happen? <laughs>
3: Yeah, it, it, interesting. And I think two quick points on that. Um, I think the first is there's a link with the institutional debate that we were having in the last section, actually, which is obviously the Climate Change Committee and the whole architecture that was set up, as Jill said, world leading in 2008, nine, um uh, around uh, setting uh, targets and trying to frame the incentives inside government for that. I think there is... That has absolutely been a help in keeping this on the agenda, including through tough economic times and through creating a framework for uh, incentivising ministers to act on something that I strongly believe they need to act on. But equally, there is something that is not just institutional about it. And I I quite strongly think that, that successive generations of politicians in different parliaments, different generations need to keep fighting and winning the argument to... Um, to take action on these things, so I do think it's important to say it's not just an institutional question, and I think there is this critique of the climate change architecture. I think can be uh, addressed by acknowledging that yes, it is a political question as well, and it needs to be um, debated and uh, uh, and and argued out. The second point, I suppose, is a narrow one on you know, classic IFG territory, machinery of government and, um, and and how and how government's decided to organise itself. We obviously had this still relatively recent, still bedding down machinery of government change to create DESNES, Department for um, Energy and uh, uh, Net Zero. Um Fine. Um, it probably some marginal benefit separating that out from Bayes, which was a huge sprawling department and so diluted some of the um, political attention of a senior minister around the cabinet table on that. But you have to set that against all the costs that we uh, often talk about of a machinery of government change. But no, there will always be pinch points. There will always be rub points in government. No uh, uh no machinery of government change is going to stop this being a defra a department for transport a deluxe and housing um uh, uh uh issue as well as an energy issue so i think we're you know as well set up as we could be but i think we've got to the stage where the institutional architecture matters less than the political will the money uh and, and the willingness to grapple trade-offs uh, and um and sell the benefits as henry and jill were saying
1: And that's where you really need the Prime Minister to show leadership and the Treasury to be fully on board.
0: Brilliant. It always comes back to number 10 and the Treasury. If you're interested in net zero, then do listen in and come along to our special one day net zero conference next week. We have some brilliant panel discussions featuring Jill, of course, and we have speeches from Chris Skidmore and Ed Miliband too. So check out our website for more information on that. And that is it for today. Thank you for listening at home. And thank you to Jill Rutter, Alex Thomas, and particularly to Henry Hill. Thank you for joining us. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all the major platforms. And please do subscribe and give us a good review. Do check out our sister channel, IFG Events, as well. We have lots of great new recordings there. And have a look on our website for the great IFG events coming up, including an in-conversation with former Chancellor Sajid Javid, special Net Zero conference, and a keynote speech from Attorney General Victoria Prentice. Have a great weekend, everyone. If you're in the Thames Water area, let's hope the taps keep running.